Welcome to episode nine of the Ordinary Saints podcast. I'm Richard Bonifant and I'm here with... Sarah West. Uh, I don't know why I felt the need to introduce us. We didn't in our last podcast. No, we didn't, but no. it's, it's pretty much us all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you never know, one day, we, well, one day soon, hopefully, we'll yeah. have another guest. And we will, we'll, in fact. And uh, we'll need to introduce them as well. So what are we talking about today, Sarah? Well, at our last podcast, we talked about the art exhibition and night prayer and some stuff that's going on. But generally, the theme was talking about art, really, wasn't it? And so we thought it'd be a good time to reflect on the experience of God or the experience in church, which is multi-sensory. So obviously, when we think about liturgy, sometimes some people might think of just, you know, one sense right like hearing we're hearing liturgy we're hearing the music but there's actually a whole bunch more that's happening and it's engaging all of our senses now art visual art is just one form of that isn't it we did the art exhibition of course but we see art in the christian tradition that goes way back you know we see it in our cathedrals and our architecture of our churches um, but also in our stained glass windows and there's a whole host of other visual art forms that take place in the Christian tradition, including iconography, which is something we've talked about previously as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, but not just sight. Let's talk about all five senses today and how we can engage those in worship. Just before we move on from sight, though, I realized the other day that one of the expressions of using sight in worship, particularly when I was a kid, was in the church I went to, there was this really amazing pipe organ that was huge. And for me, age sort of, you know, eight, nine, ten, I spent a lot of time looking at the pipe organ. And I know pipe organs aren't for everyone, (laughs) because they're not for everyone. But it was more that thing, it wasn't so much for me about the sound that it made, so much as how it worked. I was really fascinated. And for churches that do have very large pipe organs, uh, as I say this, I'm really mindful of the fact that we're sitting in a building across the road from our cathedral that has quite a substantial organ sitting there, and it's quite a visual feature. Right? Two, in fact. There's one in St. Mary's. Oh, yes, of course. And then there's also one in the, in the main nave of the cathedral. Yeah, and that's, that is one of the things that where our sight is involved, right? Because it is. Because we can see where you know, musical accompaniment is coming from, but often the actual way that the pipes are displayed is actually quite artistic in its own way too. It is. The organ in St Mary's across the road is very eloquently decorated. Mm. Uh, I believe it's blue and white paint. It's it's quite beautiful. I saw photos of it, and it's funny because I'd never actually noticed it when I was in St Mary's, and then I saw a photo of it, and I was like, wait, is that really in there? And I went back in, and I was like, wow, how did I miss that? Certainly the churches that have them are quite a distinctive feature and we don't often think about them as being something that we look at, but there you go, there there is an artistic value to the pipe organ too. Now Richard, I can't let us slip by sight to begin with without talking about your interesting social media posts because, (laughs) let me just tell you, Richard has a bit of fun every now and then with stained glass windows of churches. Now I just want to say off the bat, he, he loves them, has a real passion for them, but also sometimes you, you have a really good way of bringing out the humour in the way some of these stained glass windows are composed. Would you like to tell us more about that? It is true to say uh, stained glass windows are something that I do actually really love. I can't think of ever having 
been a, a regular worshipping person in a church that didn't have a lot of stained glass windows. So they are something I'm really interested in because stained glass windows tell stories in all sorts of different ways. And they don't just tell stories in terms of what's depicted. They tell stories about the people who made them, how they thought of God primarily uh, is one of the big expressions. So I do like that. And there are also all sorts of really little fun things that you notice, like quite often the people who make the stained glass windows will have special ways of including references to themselves in them. Um, for example, there's a, a group of stained glass windows makers called Whitefriars. And you can tell Whitefriars windows because they always have a tiny little white monk in stained glass in the corner. No um, way. Yeah, for sure. So it's really cool. And as I say, there's a whole lot of ways that stained glass windows try to communicate all sorts of messages. Because back before we had data projectors and screens and, and, and multimedia in that modern sense where you can show all sorts of images, stained glass windows was a way you could have pictures to talk about in sermons and, and teaching and other things. So they have a whole lot of purpose. But you're talking about my social media post. <laughs> So I do have a thing where I do take pictures of stained glass windows, typically ones where, where something questionable has gone on in the making <laughs> of the window generally is what I do have an eye for. And so sometimes it's fun uh, to look at the, the, the strange expressions on people's um, faces and imagine what those people might be saying. So I do have a little bit of a run uh, of those posts from time to time, uh, which uh, other people do seem to enjoy. But uh, as I say, it's meant with love and affection. Of course. It's not just uh, taking the mickey out of windows. No, I love it. It's it's very entertaining. Pers I find that personally. Okay, so sight is obviously a huge one, isn't it? I just bang the table. That must mean I'm very excited. But yeah, sight is a thing. And it's that's kind of more one of the more obvious things. Would you say? Yes, yeah, certainly words are a big part of worship, right? And mm. so we read a lot. So right there, sight is a really obvious thing, even if it's just in that sense. And I mean, it's cool to think about the decorations and all the things you can observe in a worship space as well uh, and where you direct your attention. But yeah, it's, it's obviously the easiest thing to think about, right? Yeah, and I guess we should quickly mention as well it's not just stained glass windows and and beautiful pipe organs but also the vesture you know that that you'll see Ooh. a priest wear or a deacon wear or uh people serving around the altar you know the owl the stole you know we made a previous podcast on the stole didn't we and those various symbols as well are really important and we can see them and they communicate a story and so yes yeah, sight is a big one sight is a big one in our churches but i think the great thing about this is we're exploring this so much more than that. And I know, Richard, you came to me wanting to talk about this because you had had some reflections on the smell of church. The smell of church. Please elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I know what you it mean. It definitely requires some elaboration because uh, there are, well, there are smells in church. And just to address unpleasant smells in church, because mm. one of the things I was first thinking about, because I'm, uh, doing some teaching around this at the moment was an experience of being in a cathedral in Spain, uh, which is called Santiago de Compostela. It's uh, one of the sort of destinations of uh, a very, very famous pilgrimage route that goes through, well, you can start in a number of places. You could start in France, you could start in Rome and walk through northern Spain and end up at this place, Santiago de Compostela. And they have this huge thing, which uh, we'll talk about in a bit, but 
it's one of the biggest things called a thurible in the world. It's really huge. It's uh, almost a meter or so tall, and they fill it up with at their, their main service in the middle of the day. They fill it up with incense and they swing it right out over the congregation. And so there's smell in that sense, right? That there's literally incense, big clouds of incense come puffing out of the things and it puffs, it puffs out over the crowd. And one of my teachers years ago once referred to incense as the smell of God. Mm. Yeah, the smell of God. And I think that's a really nice idea because often people talk about incense as sort of depicting prayer, but I never heard it described that way, the smell of God. So That's beautiful, actually. Yeah, it's quite a nice idea from him. But... There's also a practical reason why they did that. Because in centuries gone by, people who have been travelling a pilgrimage route over many days, weeks and months to reach the cathedral without access to baths and showers and various other things, by the time they arrive at their the destination of their pilgrimage, they in turn may not smell so great. So you've heard that expression, <laughs> the great unwashed. Um, wow. And this is one of the places where that, that expression comes from. And so incense, which we have theologized to be the smell of God, is also about kind of, well, it also might cover up the smell of some of these pilgrims. That's like quite incredible. Funny idea, right? Eh? Yeah, it is. And I, I have seen a video of what you're talking about, this huge swinging thurible. Yeah. Um, and, but I feel like for those that are listening, perhaps that don't know what a thurible is, we should go into some detail, shouldn't we? Yes, it's, worth, uh, it, it's a strange piece of apparatus it is. that not everyone is accustomed to, that's for sure. So you may have, sometimes I refer to it as the smoking handbag or the <laughs> swinging handbag, um, swinging smoking handbag even. Uh, it's usually on a chain, it's brass most of the time, and it's sort of a almost two cups clasped together in a way with holes in and you sort of put coals in the bottom and then you heap some granulated incense on top and sort of swing it around and yeah. that ox- you know oxygenates and then starts to burn and you get big wafts of smoke coming out yeah and it's quite a beautiful thing and I love your description of it being very practical yeah <laughs> for pilgrims yeah. who might be a bit smelly um, I often think of links or, you know, perfume as shower in a can or shower in a bottle. In a way, it's like, well, thurible's kind of shower in a bottle in a sense as well. Um, yeah, that's in a exactly, more eloquent way. exactly one of the things that was going on with Yeah, it. but as you know, as we all know, over time, these symbols sort of take on their own meanings, don't they? Mm. And I remember the first time someone was explaining a thurible to me, it was our prayers rising up to God, an image of our prayers rising up to God, but also the sort of mystical sense, you know, as we're wafting the smoke around the altar, it creates this illusion, right, of, of sort of uh, an other otherworldly experience. And it sort of looks very mystical and sort of enchanted almost. Yeah. And for me, that, that effect is quite beautiful. Now, you need a lot of incense to make that happen. But yeah, that was my sort of first explanation that I heard of the thurible. And I've carried that with me ever since and love the smell personally. So it definitely involves sight and smell, that mm. particular thing. Um, but when I think about the smell, of uh, going back to that thing of the smell of God, um, I realise that actually there's another smell in church that I associate with as being the smell of God, which is not incense. Uh, and for me, from quite a young age, the smell that's really evocative for me is the smell of beeswax candles, yeah. particularly when we've just put them out. So when they they have a really particular smell as they're sort of extinguishing. And that's partly because 
that was one of my jobs as a server when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. Was in fact, it was basically the reason to be a server was that you got to put all the candles out at the end of the service. For me, it's a smell that all sorts of positive memories attach to it. The second I smell it, in fact, uh, I was at home last night and someone who was doing some work had had lit a candle and I could smell it at the other end of the house. And even though it was the home context, it, it instantly made me, makes me think of church. Wow, that's amazing. And I think it's incredible how our smells attach to our memories so well. Mm. You know, you can eat a certain food, you know, and, and smell the aroma of that, you know, baked bread is one example, or yeah. toast, you know, in the toaster. You know, those kind of things are very, uh, they're really strong memories for me that I have attached to those smells. You yeah. know, as a kid, I'd always smell in the morning, my dad putting toast in the toaster or later on baking bread, you know, and the smell mm. of that in the morning was a really comforting smell that, you know, the house was filled with love and intention and, you know, all of that stuff. And it, it was a really beautiful thing. So I think with the thurible and the beeswax candles, you know, these things impress themselves on our memories. Yeah. And for me, even just the smell of sort of the old wood in churches mm. has a really has a really beautiful appeal for me as well. Yep. And you know, I'm going to say it, even the smell of the prayer book. Like sometimes <laughs> when I open up the prayer book, especially if it's an old one, yeah. And many of them are, of course. Um, it has a certain smell to it. And I think we can relate to that, you know, we go to a library and crack open an old book, you know, and you can get a similar aroma yeah, that, that comes of mustiness. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, that has a strong association with church and with prayer and worship. And so that is quite a comforting one for me as well. And it's incredible how that enhances that sense of, for me, home, a sense of being at home or a sense of safety or a sense of, you know, comfort. So we've covered off the smells of people. <laughs> the smells of incense <laughs> and the smells of candles. Indeed. Uh, that's probably enough on smell for now. I think so. <laughs> but the next one, of course, is more obvious, I think, and that's hearing, right? So we've talked a little about sight and the pipe organ and things like that and even just reading stuff off a page. But hearing is a big one because we listen to the liturgy. We listen to the organ, perhaps, or other forms of you know musical composition. And then we also hear the words of the various people speaking in the service. So that's one that's kind of more obvious to me rather than, you know, the next two, which are taste and touch. But yeah, what 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 would you say, Richard? Yeah, certainly with hearing, the one thing I'm really aware of, having been in ministry in a few different places, is is how much we do rely on it and how important a part of worship it is, particularly for those who have hearing loss. And that things like having, you know, a good quality sound system in this day and age and one that, that has a hearing loop so people who have that function with hearing aids and so on can be included. Because, of course, that's the thing with all of these different senses, right? If we have people with disability in our communities, sometimes we need to think a bit more broadly about how we include them too. So certainly when I think of hearing, that's, that's kind of where my mind goes is around, particularly around how people might be excluded from worship if they don't have that particular sense because it is such a major part Absolutely. of how we worship. And I think the same applies to sight, right? So if you've yeah. got you know, hindered eyesight and, or, or you're in blind perhaps, it, it's looking at these different ways which we can engage people with worship and we can do it collectively. Yeah, but taste is taste. the next thing taste that we need to one. talk about. We do. And you know, my immediate thought straight away was was Eucharist, you know, and 
taking the the chalice and drinking the port wine and or the blood of Christ. We're not going to go into that debate <laughs> right now, but the beautiful taste and and also the the taste of either the fresh bread or the wafers or whatever's being used. Those are really strong. And for me, again, another really strong memory associated because as a child, you know, taking, um, I remember I think one of the first times I actually drank from the chalice and tasting that, the port wine yeah. and just had a, such a distinct taste to it. And that taste has only varied a small amount over time. And yeah. so whenever I taste it, it's the sense of belonging and connectedness to this greater story that I'm a part of and that I have been a part of for a long time. On that point of taste, I have a particular memory that I was in a parish where we had a, a new vicar come and the new vicar did something radical and of course, you know, vicars should always be wary of doing radical things in their first few weeks. <laughs> but the radical thing that caused a big stir, he didn't buy the same kind of ruby red port <gasps> that we had been buying. He bought something different and it tasted different. And it was really interesting that in all seriousness, it did cause a bit of a kerfuffle in the community. And we can laugh, but yeah. I kind of get it, you know, yeah. I kind of get it. And it's funny because I didn't think I would be affected by that. Part of the problem was that what were, what the replacement was wasn't very nice. So it's sort of, and suddenly it was like, this is a problem for me. And I, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but it just doesn't have the right taste. And it, and it did impact on people's experience of the Eucharist. So I never would have thought that would have happened or it could turn into a big deal, but it, but it very briefly did. Yeah, interesting, eh? So yeah, taste, definitely, definitely a factor for sure. The other place where I know that taste is, is important for me is that at the end of worship, certainly in <laughs> coffee, my church, right? we have coffee. <laughs> I called um, it. But I say, yeah, but I do say this in all seriousness because often when we talk about worship and we talk about liturgy, we think of hospitality as being the thing that happens afterwards. Yes. But how does that change if we actually go, no, the way we offer hospitality, the way we talk and engage with each other, that's actually part of our expression of worship. That's part of how we're engaging with God because we're engaging with the body of Christ. Absolutely. So if we see that as part of our expression of worship, it, for me that makes a difference, right? And so good coffee after church is actually a really important way of how I worship. I love that. And <laughs> I, it's funny, like reflecting on that a bit, uh, St. Luke's Mount Albert, you know, which is where I, I worship, they used to have their hospitality or their coffee kind of after the service in the hall. And that's been moved into the main church. Yeah. And I remember thinking at first, like, oh, I wonder how this is going to go, you know. But actually, for me, at least, I really liked it because it was just an extension of the liturgy. You know, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a completely separate part. Yeah. And so that mingling and being together and drinking that hopefully good coffee is all part of that sensory experience of what it is and what it means to be church. So there you go. If nothing else, know that drinking coffee, smelling it as it brews mm. during the service, is definitely that is so a true. valuable part of worship. And hearing it percolate yeah. during the service is like, okay, cool, we're going to have coffee after this. You yeah. know, it's, it's very Absolutely. motivating. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I only realised that when I observed that there was a point where, uh, in a community I was in, where there were people who were just turning up for the cup of coffee. 
not the part that went before. And I had to go, well, you know, are they part of the worship experience or not? And ultimately, I actually got to say, yes, they are. Mm. That's still part of the worship for I them. That. That's what they're able to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's cool. That's awesome. Right, one sense to go. One sense. So we've got we've gone through sight, smell, hearing, and taste, and now we're at touch. Now you know this one was this one's probably a little bit harder, but at the same time there is touch, and I think particularly in our liturgy, the first one we could think of is the sharing of the peace. Now that is the point in the service where we will often shake hands, we might share a kiss on the cheek, there might be a hug involved, obviously in COVID times that was restricted, yeah. um, which I personally found really, really hard, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting in COVID times how, look, some of us at times can tend towards being a bit germophobic. And so I know for some of us, that was a really an, a really good thing. But mm. like you, I think I recognised that actually I really missed it. Yeah. And the, the thing about that that I also started thinking is that there are probably people in my church community who that shake of the hand or the hug, or, that might be the human-to-human contact they get that week. Exactly. And so in a time like COVID where we're saying we're not going to touch, we, we might maybe bump elbows, that must have been really hard on a lot of people. I think it was. And in fact, I'm I'm... I can tell you there are a number of conversations where that was expressed directly to me, you know, mm. in the cathedral, that there was this real loss of that physical touch. And I think, you know, sure, we can be cautious about that. And I think we have to be for people who perhaps don't want to be touched. And that's another thing we need to yeah, think about in the absolutely. piece. So there has to be the option for people to opt out of the physical touch during the piece. But for many people, and as it was expressed to me, and I personally experienced this myself, there was a real, yeah, a real lack of of something happening when we didn't do that sharing of the piece in a physical way. I personally really love it. I think, you know, there's there's various theologies wrapped around the piece, isn't there? Yeah. And, you know, one of them being that, you know, we sort of make amends before the Eucharist, before, before the Great Thanksgiving, mm, yeah. that we have an opportunity to connect with people in the body of Christ, in the church, who we feel we might have a disagreement with or, you know, that we actually have an opportunity to go and make amends with them. And I think that's kind of beautiful liturgically, even in a symbolic way. And I've actually been in a process where that has happened. So I was at St. John's College training for the priesthood and I remember I had this, I won't name the person, but this awesome guy who, you know, I became friends with while I was there. He was studying too. And we had an argument about something. I'd offended him. I didn't mean to, but you know how it goes. I felt really bad about it. And uh, I'd said sorry, but you know how it's just so raw, you know, that it's not quite ready to be resolved completely. And so I remember the next day we were in Eucharist together and we were sitting opposite each other on the pews and the time came to share the peace. We locked eyes immediately and went straight to one another. Yeah. And we shook hands and then that quickly turned into a swinging of the arm, into a hug. And it was the most profound sharing of the peace I've ever had because in that moment mm. we met each other in this place of forgiveness and of embrace. And that was a really powerful moment. So there is this, this thing about touch, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, in our relationships with one another and the, I guess the power of touch as well. 
I mean, it can be awkward. Like, let's just oh, name it. Yeah. There are some really awkward <laughs> oh, yeah. sharing of the piece moments. You know, I can think of a few. I know that <laughs> you've probably had some of those too, where yep. it's sort of a kiss on the cheek <laughs> gone wrong or something like that, and it can be a bit awkward. But I think ultimately, overall, it's a really powerful practice. You've already hinted at it. We're really sympathetic to the fact that for some people, touch can be really difficult. And there are a whole lot of circumstances where touch may become difficult and unsafe. And for me, I think one of the the really good things about church is that hopefully, ideally, we're providing a safe space for safe, appropriate touch. Absolutely. I mean, I'd hate to think anything going awfully wrong in church. Um, I'm sure it has happened, but certainly my hope is that it doesn't. Mm. And that that's actually a way where people can... Yeah, make those connections because you're right. I think your story shows really clearly that touch was a part of the healing process was to to actually physically touch another person was was part of what helped fix the relationship. Absolutely. And I think I have one more story as well about touch, if I could. My experience of my first confession, or in our prayer book we call it the reconciliation of a penitent, was was a profound experience of this. There was no touch involved at all up, up until the very end. And sometimes this is used ritually. Uh, It's called the kiss of peace. Now, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to expect in my first confession. But long story short, it was a really grueling process, actually. One that changed my life, you know, so much so that I even got a tattoo about it on my arm. It was a real turning point for me where I really understood and experienced grace properly for the first time, which was quite a shock seeing as this was only a few months before my ordination. But... (laughs) I was like, really, God, you wanted to, you know, wait this long for me to really encounter grace in a really profound way. And so anyway, at the end of this process, which, you know, involved many tears and me just pouring out all this stuff with the priest obviously being there as a witness to this confession. At the very end, I was sort of on the ground, knees on the carpet, you know, just completely crumpled, feeling incredibly loved and blessed through the process, but at the same time, so exhausted and emotionally drained and my face was sticky from all the tears and everything and the priest blessed me and then anointed and blessed me and then put both of their hands on either side of my head and kissed me on the top of the head. Now I didn't see it coming but it has stayed with me ever since because that kiss was like the kiss of God and I've never, I've never forgotten even the, you know, the location of it on my head and everything, because for me, it was such a profound sense of God's blessing upon me and the, se- the sense that I've, I'm accepted, you know, that I can do nothing that will disqualify me from that love of God. And so that moment of touch and uh, that ritual sense was so incredibly powerful for me. And yeah, so that's something that really, that really moved me and the touch, you know, of the five senses. Well, thanks for talking to me today about multi-sensory worship. Yeah, uh, and you, me. Yeah, I hope we've uh, opened a few new perspectives for people in terms of thinking about how uh, our entire being is actually involved in worship. And worship isn't just about the thoughts we have in our heads or what we say or even necessarily the actions we do, but it's so much more. That harks back to our first podcast when we talked about liturgy being the so much more. Absolutely. uh, Because it really is uh, everything that we do. And I think it's probably just fair to say before we finish that, you know, we're talking specifically about sort of church worship. Mm. But 
worship is so much broader than just what we do in church, obviously. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so we're encountering God through the senses all the time, I believe. Mm. That could be another podcast in itself, couldn't it? But we're just looking at sort of mainly our liturgy and how these senses are engaged with that. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. So thank you, Richard, for all of this time. And uh, we hope you can tune in with us next time. Mm.